Thank you for joining our Transform 365 podcast, a discipleship and teaching ministry of SWCC. We pray this teaching helps you to grow in your journey with Christ. We have some great resources available for you on transform365.com webpage. Feel free to download discipleship materials, small group teaching, as well as peruse our training workshops. Also take time to visit www.swcc.org for videos, teaching, and more. We thank you for listening and your support, and we would love to hear from you. So use our contact page and drop us a line. Now for our podcast teaching. Well, welcome to the Transform 365 podcast. I'm Pastor Cody. Uh, Today, our co-host is not here today with us, but we are joined uh, by Dr. Fred Che. He's the Dean of uh, Doctoral Studies at Grace School of Theology. He was a professor of theological studies and director of the D-Men program at Phoenix Seminary. He has a THM, uh, D-Men, and a PhD. He's the writer of Faith That Saves, The Glorious Grace of God, Medical Ethics, and Suffering Successfully, and has been in ministry for over 40 years. Uh, Dr. Che, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, you know, just uh, you you do a myriad of writing, a myriad of teaching, and we really very much appreciate everything you do to add to the free grace of God. And so uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Cody, it is my privilege to be here. I wish I could be in Miami, Florida, but I'll <laughs> talk from here in Dallas, Texas, and we'll see what can, can take place. Yeah, well, they call Dallas God's country. So, you know, uh, <laughs> you're connecting, I guess, to us pagans. You're it's just a little short of the millennial kingdom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Che, uh, like I said, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, we're going to be doing an uh, interview just uh, for people that don't know you. Um, can you just give us a little bit of your background and, and um, you know, what, what you're doing today? I know I, I already said you're, you know, doing the working with GSOT and the um, doctoral program over there. But can you give us a little details on that? Sure. I, uh, I've been a pastor for a number of years, and then I went and worked with the Christian Medical Society and headed up the ethics department there and spiritual formation. But then I've spent about 22 years in Phoenix, Arizona, working at Phoenix Seminary, and there as the director of the doctoral program and a professor. And then Dr. Anderson uh, asked if I would come to Grace School of Theology. And so I've been there now for eight years. I'm actually the academic dean, as uh, well as professor of theology. And I get to teach a variety of courses there and work with some wonderful men and women. And uh, the Lord has blessed our school by allowing us to reach out to 700 students around the world. And uh, we're just kind of excited. We're fully accredited by the uh, ATS Society. We're actually the only school that is free grace and officially accredited by ATS. So we're pretty excited about that. And we look forward to training the next generation of free grace pastors and theologians. That's fantastic. And you guys make it your your priority to keep... Uh, theological training um, inexpensive. And so um, I know that many men and women across the world really appreciate that as well. Well, the Lord has blessed us with a lot of faithful men and women who have contributed that allows us to keep our degree programs affordable and our technology allows it to be accessible. 
So we're uh, very blessed to have that. And uh, the Lord has been very kind to us to provide all that we need. So we uh, praise the Lord for that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And Phoenix, that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that was started by uh, Dr. Earl Rodmacher, correct? It was. He was hands on with it. Dr. Rodmacher started it as Western Seminary Phoenix, and then it became a standalone Phoenix Seminary. Mm. And then uh, when Dr. Rodmacher left, there began a, a series of shiftings theologically to move it from what was started as a completely free grace seminary to now it's basically a Reformed Baptist five-point Calvinistic seminary. That's about as big a shift as you can find in the theological world of evangelicalism, but uh, that's what happened. It uh, it went from dispensational free grace, pre-mill, pre-trib to a Reformed Baptist five-point Calvinist post-tribulational rapture progressive covenantal theology position. Those are those are pretty big seismic shifts. Yes, that is. That is. And I'm sure uh, that that probably pained Dr. Rodmacher while he was uh, seeing that take place before he passed. So I think it did. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Che, uh, one of the questions that uh, John, if he was here, he he really wanted to ask. And so I'm going to go ahead and start right off with on the bat with it is uh, tell us uh, of, of the story of your meeting with uh, Dr. John MacArthur t- to give him your master's thesis on Lordship Salvation. How was that interaction? I know, I know I've heard you say it before, and it was very, um, very cordial, very, very kind. But uh, give us a little bit of background on that, if you would. Well, when I was at Dallas Seminary in the THM program back then, you had to write a thesis. And so I became very enamored with Lordship Salvation because of my association with Dr. MacArthur before I went to seminary. And so when I went there, I was a believer in Lordship Salvation. And then having taken a variety of courses with Zane Hodges, Charles Ryrie, Howard Hendricks, and a few others, I realized that I was wrong. And so I adjusted and became what now is called a free grace perspective. And Dr. Craig Glickman, a very uh, excellent professor at Dallas Seminary in Soteriology, as well as Zane Hodges, were the readers for my thesis, and I wrote it on Lordship Salvation as taught by John MacArthur. Mm -hmm. Now, this was back in 1982-83 when there weren't any books out on this. Nobody was writing on this, but Dr. MacArthur had spoken on it quite a bit, and I knew him, and I'd heard him and talked with him about it, so I was pretty much kind of aware of it. So I thought that would be a good topic. Dr. Ryrie said he thought that would be an excellent topic. So I wrote on that, and I communicated with Dr. MacArthur throughout the year to kind of send him parts of what I was working on to make sure I was, you know, articulating his view clearly and fairly. And so the last time we got together, he was in Dallas for the Christian Booksellers Association, and he and I had breakfast together, and I gave him the final copy of the thesis, and he'd already read it, but I gave him an official copy just for him to have. And uh, I said, so was I fair? And he said, absolutely. You said exactly what I believe, and you did a fair job. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, I think I need to write a book on this. (laughs) And so a few years later, lo and behold, he wrote The Gospel According to Jesus. And uh, off we went with the modern free grace debate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very delightful time. Uh, Dr. MacArthur is a very godly man, a wonderful man, a great servant of the church. 
He's like 83 years old now, and he still preaches. He's had a few health problems uh, just in the past couple of weeks. But um, he's been a voice for a conservative approach to hermeneutics. He's been a voice for dispensationalism. But he's also been a very clear voice for lordship salvation. And, and at that point, we we parted company. But uh, I learned a great deal from him, and I praise God for allowing me to be uh, influenced by him for so many years. Yeah. Yeah, there is a a big strong shift, I would say, um, in in that time with uh, DTS, um, where you know, Dr. Ryrie, Dr. Hodges, and uh, Pentecost, and you know, some of uh, Howie Hendricks, uh, they were all coming into the same understanding of this free grace theology all at the same time, and it was just an amazing. Uh, boom of understanding, I would, I guess you'd say, uh, in that moment. You know, it seemed like Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, he seemed to be free grace in his soteriology volume and his eight-volume systematic theology. And so that was pretty much what people believed, and people like Roy Zook uh, held to that. But there were others like Dr. S. Lewis Johnson who didn't, and that created some dialogue. And then when Zane Hodges came around, I think he became the person who helped solidify and help these things coalesce around an exegetical model, not a theological model, mm -hmm. but he provided the exegetical basis for which we then come up with our theological model. So I think he was very instrumental in providing the, the quote, modern free grace movement, the opportunity to study these things uh, based on exegesis. Yeah. Yeah. What, why do you think... Um... <clears throat> assurance of salvation is such an important aspect to the faith of a believer. You know, um, when it comes to uh, the soteriological stance of free grace theology, uh, we look at the importance of assurance of salvation, right? And that's one of the things I think that stands out as a bastion of light between uh, the lordship or the reformed theology versus a uh, free grace side is that we believe that you can have assurance of salvation. So uh, why do you think assurance of salvation is such an important aspect to the faith of a believer? Well, I think the obvious answer is, is that that is what gives you confidence to live the Christian life in spite of failure in the Christian life. If, if you know that you have confidence that I'm going to heaven, even when I screw up in my life, I can carry on. It's like being in a family. If you if you know your father loves you unconditionally, then you, you know even if you mess up and let him down here and there, you're not going to go quit and run away because you know he's not going to throw you away. So you have great confidence to go forward. The danger within the lordship discussion is that the Reformed theology tends to say that our assurance is based primarily on our work. It's based primarily on the change in our lifestyle and behavior. And that if you don't change that, you obviously weren't saved. Dr. John Piper's new book, The Nature of Saving Faith, is very clear that assurance of salvation is predicated upon a changed lifestyle. So if you don't have a changed lifestyle, you're not really saved. So you have no assurance because who knows how good I have to be in order to have enough confidence that I'm actually saved. So you really don't have assurance of salvation until you die. Uh, Dr. MacArthur, I believe, he actually said that nobody except the apostles had total assurance that they were saved. 
Mm. So if your assurance of salvation is based on your good works, that's a problem. It's also based on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we would agree the Holy Spirit is dwells inside of us, gives us assurance of our salvation. So that's good. But when you make works the primary or the initial way of knowing if you're in the faith, you have trouble. I remember talking with Dr. MacArthur about this uh, at breakfast, and he brought up to me, well, well, what do you do with 2 Corinthians 13, 6? Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And he said, well, of course, that means if, if you should you should examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, and if you're not living a good enough life, then you aren't. But if you are just sinning a little bit, the Spirit will convict you, and then you'll know you're saved, and then you'll be better. And I'm going, my gosh, what kind of theory of sanctification is that? I live in doubt until I get enough evidence. Yeah. Well, then you really never have assurance. And that's a shame because Jesus seemed to say in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has, has passed, has passed from death to life and will never come into judgment. That that sounds like I can have assurance when I trust Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a, I think that um, not having assurance kind of gives us this understanding or if it's a works-based assurance, uh, I like the way uh, Dr. Dr. Charlie Bing says it. He says, um, you know, if it's based on a, a, an alcoholic uh, not drinking, you know, if he's changed from drinking, you know, 50 beers a day to now he's only drinking 25, isn't that still a change? And, uh, you know, we can't base change based on ourselves and because uh, we always fall short. And I think that's a, an important aspect of that is understanding that everybody changes at a different rate, different pace, and based on the Holy Spirit's convictions as well. So, uh, and we can grow carnal. We could go grow cold towards that, um, which is seen. I mean, uh, Paul said, "Hey, you know, what did they say about the Cretans? Right, that they're <laughs> they're they're liars, they're cheaters, they're swindlers. You know, don't trust them, but greet our brothers and sisters in Crete. <laughs> you know, I think that's yeah. an important aspect that we have to remember is that." These people are being named as that, um, as believers. And, you know, in the book of Colossians, you know, um, which none of us can argue on the reform side or free grace side, that that's not written to uh, believers. Um, there's a warning that he who steals should steal no more. And if it's written to believers, then, you know, um, that person has an assurance of salvation, right? Because Paul's writing to them as believers, current, you know, they, they have salvation, they've obtained it. So why would he be telling them that their actions of theft, you know, which I guess you would say on the reform side, that means they're not saved. So there's so much conflict within scripture against that idea of you're working your assurance or you're working your salvation. Well, it's a very subjective sliding scale, mm-hmm. which allows some people to become the official fruit inspectors, and it causes other people to become legalistic enough to try to prove they're saved. And then for a lot of people, they just give up because they say, well, gosh, what I can never meet the standard. I yeah. can never be good enough. And and how would you ever know if you're good enough? That's the problem. Yeah, it, it comes across very similar to uh, Islamic theology, where you know, you have to do this work for Allah and you're never good enough, but maybe he'll tip his, the scale for you when you finally get, you know, die. It's it's uh, it's very sad. Uh, is having assurance of your salvation a requirement to receive eternal life? 
Well, Cody, that's a fairly important modern question. And notice the term you just used is having. Having, that's a participle. And it sounds like a present participle. And it sounds like, do you have to and always have assurance in order to know you were saved? Or as it's now put, having eternal, knowing that you have eternal security is part of the content of the gospel. So many people, or not many, some people would say that unless you have assurance that you are eternally secure, you never believed the gospel. In other words, you need to understand that that is part of the gospel. Now, I'm not sure that that's actually part of the gospel at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I need to believe in the person and the work or the person and the promise of Jesus that if you believe in him, you have eternal life, and uh, that's good. When you do that, you I think you should be able to say, well, I, I have eternal life because that's what I believed in. However, that does not mean that a person knows that they could not lose it. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. If you believe you have eternal life, you have eternal life. That's true. But that doesn't mean that you fully understand that you might not lose it sometime in the future. That's called the doctrine of eternal security. And that's different. Now, it's interesting in the first 300 years of church history, uh, as I understand it, and I'm not a historical theologian by training, although I know some people who would say the same thing. Um, I believe for the first 300 years, there was no writing about the doctrine of eternal security. And so that doesn't mean people didn't believe it, but all it means is we don't have any documentary evidence that they believed it in their sermons or in their writings. So I think it's very possible for a person to become a Christian and actually not sure if they could ever lose it. Now, they can't ever lose it. We know that theologically and exegetically. However, that doesn't mean that a person always knows that. Some people would say, oh, no, no, assurance is the essence of saving faith. What they mean is eternal security is the essence of saving faith. I agree theologically that's true, but that doesn't mean that every person that believes receives the gospel, like the Philippian jailer, that doesn't mean he understood well, then, of course, I have eternal security attached. Hopefully, the the church will teach Christians that doctrinal truth, but it doesn't mean that to become a Christian, you have to know that doctrinal truth. Just like you don't have to understand the Trinity, you don't have to understand a lot of theological positions in order to become a Christian. So I know that's a hot button today within the free grace movement, but um, in my view, when you become a believer— I, th I think you naturally assume I have eternal life, but you don't naturally assume, I wonder if I could lose it. Then yeah. there are lots of Christians who think that. And it doesn't mean they're not Christians. It means they need to be taught the doctrine of eternal security. Yeah. Yeah. They need to, they need to grow in their understanding. Uh, I think, I think uh, every pastor has seen that where uh, you'll have the same individual, you know, if you present the gospel and, ask them to either raise their hand or repeat after you, you'll either see the same lips moving every Sunday for a couple of weeks or the same hand going up for a couple Sundays. Um, and it's just, you, you need to guide that person in understanding that it's, it's not something that they have to do over and over because it's not lost. It, right. it's a great point. And that's discipleship, isn't it? Is just growing people in their understanding of the concepts of, of the, of the word of God. Absolutely.
Yeah. Why do you think um, the lifestyle lived in faith is vital to the relationship a believer has? You know, I think this one kind of goes into the idea of um, of this. Um, and, and I'll tell you where this question really stems from. Uh, today, um, well, a- as in way back when, in the 80s and 90s as well, um, the free grace movement is accused of being antinomian or anti-law or anti-lordship, right? We're the non-lordship guys. But I don't think that's true. I think we, we do tell people the importance of the lordship of Christ, and we do talk about the importance of a lifestyle lived in faith. Um, it's just we separate that from salvation, and I think the Bible does a good job of doing that as well. So why do you think the lifestyle lived in faith is vital to the relationship a believer has with Christ? Well, first of all, theologically, you're absolutely correct. There is a difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is by one act of faith where I appropriate and receive the gift of eternal life, and sanctification is the lifestyle of faithfulness as I work for God. Those are two totally different messages. John 3.16 is not the same as Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. That has to do with what you said, discipleship or progressive sanctification. So lifestyle lived for Jesus, the free grace movement is all about that. In fact, we are rabid about the importance of sanctification. We just don't commingle and conflate justification and sanctification together like the Roman Catholic Church did so clearly, or as the Reformed Church does sometimes. They sometimes blend them together. They want to keep them separate, but they end up functionally being together. Mm -hmm. We believe in the doctrine of reward. Rewards for faithful service to Christ are very nuanced in the theology of grace. And so we teach this all the time, but we always make sure it's separated from the doctrine of justification by faith alone and sanctification by faithfulness to Christ. So we think it's very important for sanctification. It's totally ironic to think that we are antinomian. On the one hand, we're totally antinomian, because the Bible is about justification. But on the other hand, we're totally oriented towards living the Christian life of obedience because we recognize more than any of the Reformed people the doctrine of rewards. Many of the Reformed people don't even believe in a Bema seat. I remember talking with Doug Moo one day. He came to Phoenix Seminary and spoke to the the faculty, and um, I asked him a question. He was talking about the book of Galatians because he had a new book coming out on that at the time. And I said, well, Dr. Moo, what exactly is the nature of the danger in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, the judgment seat of Christ? He said, oh, that's very significant. That's hell. And I said, I said, oh, oh excuse me. I, I meant 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. He said, yes, yes, yes. And I said, okay, thank you. I didn't want to bother him anymore because it seemed self-evident that that, that wasn't correct, but I wasn't going to say anything because yeah. he was our he was our guest. Yeah. Wayne Grudem was sitting right next to me in the meeting, and Dr. Grudem asked us, well, Doug, Dr. Moo, Doug, Doug, why could that not be the, the Venus seat where Christians are given reward for faithful service? And Dr. Moo said, oh, no, no, that's way too severe. This can't be that. 
well, most Reformed theologians don't have a place for the Bema seat. They they don't have a place for the judgment seat of Christ because they don't have a millennial kingdom, mm -hmm. which means they blend together the Bema seat and the great white throne, which we would separate by a thousand years. They put them together into one great judgment, and they can't differentiate. Yeah. And that's why that's why they don't have a very robust doctrine of rewards. But the free grace movement has always had a robust doctrine of reward. In fact, we look at it as two motivational motivational mechanisms for faithfulness to Christ. One, my appreciation of what he has done for me. I was going to hell. Now I'm going to heaven. I'm appreciative for the rest of my life. But there's a second motivational mechanism. His appreciation of what I do for him. That's called reward theology. So both of those are in play. I am appreciative because I'm justified by faith alone, and one day he will appreciate my faithfulness to him and reward me, like it says in dozens of places in the New Testament. The Bema Seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, Romans 14, 10. Revelation 2, 20 and 26 talks about Jesus giving us a reward to rule in heaven as his Father gave him the right to rule. Mm -hmm. Or as Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 1.17, you're standing before an impartial judge. Therefore, conduct yourselves with fear during your time of stay upon the earth. Those are all sanctification. Those are all reward passages. And the free grace theology is the only theology that understands that and teaches that at a very high level. Yeah. Amen. Uh, one of the passages that... Um, uh, of, of those that believer uh, believe uh, works as is assurance of salvation is Matthew 7, 21 and 22. Um, what would be your rebuttal to someone using this as a proofs passage for works-based assurance? Well, this is a very famous passage. It comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's the context. Jesus is talking to both the disciples and then probably the larger group. And he's talking to them about false prophets, mm -hmm. right? He, he's, he's talking about the idea of how do you spot a false prophet? Well, he says, you will know them, verse 20, by their fruit. He says in verse 16, you will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from bushes nor figs from thistles. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit, and good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. So well, what is the fruit of a false prophet? In fact, if you go over to uh, chapter 12, verse 33, the next time we see this, this whole idea starting in verse uh, 31, but we'll pick it up in verse uh, 32 or 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak, speak, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. Verse 36, and I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it on the day of judgment. For by your words, you shall be justified, and by your words, you shall be condemned. So the words of a false prophet are the message of a false prophet. That's the fruit of a false prophet. It has nothing to do with their works, because as Jesus said back in Matthew 7, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. 
They look like sheep. How come? Because they do good work. How do you spot the false prophet? By the message of the false prophet. And that's essentially what Jesus says, verse 21 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Notice these are false prophets who say, Lord, Lord, who do things for the Lord. And yet Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What's the problem with the false prophet? Their message is false. The fruit of the message is false. Their words are false. And yet these seem to be people who think they're saved. They say, Lord, Lord, and they do good work. And Jesus doesn't deny that they do good work. So the problem with using this verse is that what it's actually saying is here are religious people who think they're good enough, who have done the good work. And Jesus says, nope. The one thing you didn't do is the will of my Father. And the will of my Father, we find in John 6, verse 29 and 39, is to believe in the Son. Well, if you don't believe in the Son, you can do all the works you want and you're not saved. This is the irony of the Lordship Salvation people who use this verse to say, this is how you know you're saved if you do good work. Well, the problem here is these people do good work. The problem is they don't do the will of God, which is to believe in the Son. So this is probably a very bad passage to use for wardship salvation because it actually teaches the opposite. Yeah, I think it also in its application, uh, since, it, it, as you said, this is the Sermon on the Mount preaching. So the main address is to his followers, his disciples, and by secondary, the people that are listening on the mountainside as well. But uh, the Pharisees called Jesus Lord out of respect for his, you know, him being a rabbi, they would call him master, master, lord, and rabbi were all kind of synonymous terms back then. So the disciples would know exactly where he's going with this. These guys, they think they're, you know, doing great things, but they don't know Christ as their savior, right? They, even in that day, there was plenty of, you know, Pharisees and, and you know, Sadducees and things, people doing good works, uh, but had no relationship with Christ, even in that time. And so even in that, you can see it coming alive for the people in that time. And there are many false prophets today who do good things. Exactly. Many, many, many Mormons believe or utter false prophecy, but they live life in a very good, quote unquote, moral, ethical, Christian value system manner. Yeah. But they're not going to be in heaven because they failed to do the one thing that the Father's will is, and that is believe the Son. Exactly. Amen. Amen. That is very true. So, uh, why do you think? Uh, why do you? Why would you say it's dangerous for pastors, teachers, or believers in general to hold to a stance or teach uh, your works, um, or your preserving in faith? you know, through your speech, thought, and lifestyle, prove that you're saved? Why do you think that is a dangerous stance to take? Well, one, because I think it's unbiblical, so that makes it dangerous. Number two, so uh, psychologically, it's extremely dangerous because how would you ever know if you did enough good work? 
Again, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Well, that means we run around examining ourselves all the time. Am I good enough today? Hey, I've stopped sinning as much today. I must be saved. Mm -hmm. Those are good days. Well, what if you have a bad day and you say, well, gosh, I'm sinning more. Maybe I'm not saved. Well, wow. You take someone with a weak conscience and that can wind them up so that they're not really sure they're saved if they don't feel right or they do something that's wrong. So it's a totally subjective system, but it's a great way to control people. I remember I used to go to prisons and teach the Bible for prison fellowship. And I would go to these prisons. I remember going to one prison and the trustees, these are the good prisoners, welcomed me in the, you know, they took me in. The first thing they said to me was, will we go to hell if we smoke? Mm. And I said, well, no, but it might hasten your destination in a, quicker if you yeah. smoke. And then they said, will we go to hell if we drink? Again, I said, well, no. I, and I'm thinking to myself, I just got in the door and these people want to know if their lifestyle is going to send them to hell. What's going on here? Well, then I found out I met the chaplain and the chaplain was a Wesleyan Methodist who basically said, if you are saved, that's good. But as long as you do good, you're saved. But if you start doing bad things like drinking or or smoking, you're going to go to hell. And that was his way of controlling the population mm. by by dangling them over hell every time they did something that he thought wasn't the right thing to do. This is pure subjectivity. It's a sliding scale. It is crazy. And what do you do with places where Paul says that some people have all of their works burned up, but yet they will be saved so as through fire? Paul at least hypothetically puts out the point, what if you had a person who their whole life was worthless? They would still be saved because they trusted Christ. They'd have no reward but they'd still be saved. So this is a big problem. Now, my Reformed friends say, well, Fred, you're going to give too much assurance to people who think they're saved and they're not saved. And I remember saying to my friend Wayne Grudem once, I said, you know, Wayne, you don't have to worry about that because in your system, if they're going to heaven, no matter what, because it's not their choice, God chose them. And if they're going <laughs> to hell, they yeah. got to go to hell because God de demanded that they go to hell before they ever existed. And that was God's choice. So I said, There's, you don't have to worry about me giving false assurance to anybody because God's system your way means there's no way for anybody to have a choice. Mm -hmm. But we do have a choice and we do have a choice as Christians to live godly. And that's why every imperative in the New Testament is there, because the imperative implies that it's possible to obey it or not obey it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that um, that really just um, it, it confuses a lot of people, um, you know, where where we try to control and, and keep them under thumb in that way. And, and uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. When you get down to the root of it, it ends up becoming a double predestination. Right. God, yep. if he chooses some to go to heaven, then that means he's choosing others to go to hell or eternal damnation. So. Uh, you brought up yeah, exactly. You brought up um, Dr. Grudem a couple times, and uh, one of the questions we have here is, uh, what was it um, like working with Dr. Grudem at a Phoenix Seminary for 13 years? It seems like you guys actually had a good rapport going back and forth, but uh, also you probably got into some big debates, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Dr. Wayne Grudem is a marvelous man. He's a godly man. He loves Jesus. He loves his family. He handles his life quite well. Um, he is a clear biblicist and believes in the inerrancy of the Bible. 
and he is actually a very good card player, so never play for <laughs> money. Uh, he's great at cancellation, cancellation hearts. Uh, he's a very brilliant guy. I mean, he's got a great pedigree academically, but he's also a very pleasant man. And mm -hmm. I've enjoyed knowing him for all these years. And uh, we found many points of agreement on uh, complementarianism issues and a variety of uh, theological and ethical issues. And he has produced a tremendous work for the evangelical church. His systematic theology book, his ethics book is fabulous. I use his ethics book uh, every year when I teach ethics. It's, it's fabulous. Uh, so he has produced a lot of great stuff. However, he does hold to reform theology. That's his system from day one. He doesn't deviate from it, but he he and I have talked uh, many times about the free grace issue. He's written about it. Um, he put out a book, you know, Five Reasons Free Grace Theology Diminishes the Glory of God. And I totally disagree with that book, but I did find that at least he understood that free grace theology can save you. I asked him, I said, Wayne, if somebody believed the free grace message I preach, would they become a Christian? He said, absolutely right. And I said, well, then what's the problem? If what I'm preaching a person believes are saved, what is the problem? Why do you want to add to that? And he said, well, I just want to make sure people don't have false assurance. And again, I said, well, they won't have false assurance if they believe what I just said. They'll have true assurance of salvation. And so, again, he tends to sometimes dangerously blend progressive sanctification with justification. Now, he would claim he doesn't, and, and they have their scenario where they would not say that works are the grounds of justification, but that it is the evidence of justification. And so if you don't have the evidence, you never had the real item. That's the basic system. But uh, he and I, uh, we got along very well. We dialogued well. Um, we didn't agree. And we did have some debates at faculty meetings, and we had some debates publicly, and uh, we've had some debates privately. And uh, so I count him as a friend. I don't agree with that part of his theology, but I do think he has served the church quite well. And uh, in fact, I saw him a couple of months ago at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting and uh, got caught up a little bit there as well. That's good. That's good to see. So, uh, one of the things that I often tell people is that uh, no matter what side of the fence we fall on uh, doctrinally, theologically, we need to make sure that people see the love that we have for one another stand out above all else, uh, because that's the major draw. And that's what Christ said. You know, it proves uh, it shows us to be disciples sitting at the feet of Christ if we have love for one another. So, you know, when he wrote his book. Uh, I decided that we needed to write a book on that. So I asked five of my friends to write chapters in this book. And so he wrote a very short book, about 110 pages. We produced about a 400-page book to respond to it, uh, a defense of free grace theology. And I think that's been a very helpful tool for people to navigate this free grace debate um, in general, especially then between the, the, the view of Dr. Grudem and the free grace theology folks. So that's a very helpful resource to me. Yeah. Uh, th that kind of segues to uh, the next question, because, you know, that has to do, you're talking a lot about justification and sanctification. Uh, why do you think it's important to keep it distinct? Well, 
we have a great historical example of what happens when you don't. That's called the, the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> yes. Uh, when they blended the two in order to control the people, um, lots of problems came about until finally Luther realized that there was bad corruption inside the church, not to mention theological problem. And so Luther helped put together, quote, the Reformation, and then fueled by Dr. John Calvin and a lot of other people who were before and after, but they all were trying to help realize that we're saved by faith alone, not by works. The Council of Trent put together their Roman Catholic Church document to counteract the Reformation, but we've had this fight ever since. We need to keep the two separate because if we don't, then we confuse the message into what I believe is a, a lordship salvation message, which is very problematic. So it's a theological distinction between justification and sanctification between our initial relationship with Jesus and then our continuing fellowship with Jesus. So as Dr. Anderson likes to say, Jesus likes to catch the fish first before he cleans them. Mm -hmm. So he, he catches us and that's justification. He cleans us up that sanctification. You can't clean a fish before you catch it. Yeah. So justification by faith alone, sanctification by growing in your faithfulness to Christ through work for Christ. Uh, I, another one of these passages that kind of looks as though it's a problem, um, you know, uh, that people call them the warning passages of, of Hebrews. Um, another of these passages used, though, to express the views of persevering in faith or working to stay saved is Hebrews chapter 10, um, and specifically, it's pointed to uh, verses 26 through 39. Um, how would you handle this if you're looking at it through a, um, I guess you'd say a free grace lens, but I don't want to say that. Just looking at it exegetically, breaking it down in these warning passages uh, for someone that's struggling in their theology to understand it. You know, somebody's struggling even in their faith. Well, this is a major controversial section. In the book of Hebrews, you've got five warning passages. You have it in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, and then chapter 12. And they all build with intensity. And the question is, what's the nature of the warning? Some people say this is a warning to people who are Christians, but then they can lose their eternal life and they go to hell. That would be the Wesleyan Arminian perspective. Uh, then there are those who say, no, these are people who look like they're Christians, but they aren't because they don't persevere in the faith, and therefore they go to hell. That would be Calvinism. So some people say they were believers, and then they go to hell because they lost it. They fell away. Others would say they never really were Christians. And that's the traditional Reformed view of we, when you look at these passages. The free grace view says, well, no, actually, that's a mistake. These warnings are actually to Christians. There's no doubt about that. But what's the warning talking about? The warning is not warning them about losing eternal life. It's about losing reward. It's about losing their place of reward in the millennial kingdom so that they would not become what is called partakers or metacoi, partners, and that's talked about in chapter 1, 2, 3, and numerous places. So when you get to chapter 10, you're at perhaps the most severe warning passage in the book. 
And picking up where you suggested, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully, now notice the author includes himself in the warning. We, what's the nature of this issue? Willful sin, hard-headed willful sin. If we keep doing that after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire which will consume the adversaries. And then he uses an illustration after he quotes the Old Testament, he uses an illustration. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. I mean, if you did a certain sin, on um, if you had the witnesses, you died. Summary execution. Mm -hmm. But guess what? There's something worse than just dying. He says, verse 29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was, past tense, sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Here's the picture of a Christian who is fearful and wants to go back to Judaism so he won't be persecuted for his new faith in Christ. And the author says that's a dangerous thing to do, because what are you doing? You're trampling underfoot the Son of God and regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant, and you're insulting the Spirit of grace. That's a very bad thing to do, because verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge the non-Christian. Well, it doesn't say that. It says, The Lord will judge his people. He's talking to his people, just like in the Old Testament. And now the author uses it to talk to the church about his people. But notice the harshness of this warning. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Mm -hmm. God will judge his people. God does judge his people. God deals with sin of a wayward child. But now notice the author is very optimistic. He says, but, verse 32, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. These are Christian Jewish people who have suffered. They have endured, but now they're worried that they might die for their faith, so they're thinking about going back, and he says, don't do it. Remember how you were faithful in the past. Keep it up. Verse 34, here's an example of what you did. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. These people suffered. Why would they suffer? Knowing that you have a possession or you have for yourself a better possession and an abiding one. Well, what is it that they had? They had a possession and an abiding one. And by the way, if you have the King James Version, the majority Greek texts read a better possession and an abiding one in heaven. These people have an abiding reward in heaven. How do I know it's a reward? Look at verse 35. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have done, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. They don't need to get 
they don't need to become Christians. They are Christians. They need endurance to live it out to the end so they can be rewarded with the promise. And of course, chapter 11 is going to go into all these faithful believers who didn't receive the promise, but died in their faith because they were looking for a future reward, a future kingdom, a future city, a future country that God would build and would give to them if they were found faithful. Mm. So this is a tremendous warning to the believer not to go back to the old day and the old way and forfeit their reward that's reserved for them in heaven. This has nothing to do with about the Christian losing his eternal life and going to hell, and it has nothing to do about non-believers proving that they're not believers because they don't live faithfully enough for Christ. Do you really think every first century Christian was a martyr? Do you really think there weren't any cowards in the church? To ask the question is to answer, of course there were cowards in the church. Of course there are cowards today in the church. And many Christians in China and Afghanistan and Pakistan, they can be killed for their faith. Do you not think that some of them are brave? Of course they are. But do you not think that some of them are cowards? Of course there are some. That does not determine their eternal life. It might determine their reward for eternity. Yeah, yeah. I think you you gave a, a great insight there is that uh, really we shouldn't we shouldn't divorce chapter 10 from chapter 11 because uh, there were no chapter divisions originally. But also he is the writer is tying so beautifully, you know, you're 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 losing your 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 firm foundation of your faith. Right. You're you're starting to slide off back to Judaism. Look at these. They stayed firm in something that they didn't even taste and experience, you know, um, and and they remained faithful. And that's what you need. Uh, great, great point there. Let me ask you, as as dean of, of the doctoral students um, that you see meet, you read their papers, um, and, and you're being introduced to many pastors and aspiring pastors, um, what would you say is the biggest threat to pastors today? Well, as the academic dean dealing with all of our programs, it seems to me for those men who are going to become pastors, they need two things. In the old days, they needed one thing, but in these days, they need two things. Number one, they need to be competent. They need to be competent at being biblical expositors, theologians, and ethicists. You've got to know what the Bible says. You need to create it into theology, and then you need to make ethical decisions of applying it in today's culture. So they've got to be competent in those areas. And that's why we have in our degree programs courses on hermeneutics, biblical theology, systematic theology, Bible, ethics, apologetics, all of those things so that our people will become competent. But the second thing they need today more than ever is they need to be courageous. They need to have courage. Many, many pastors do not have courage. They want to keep the peace. They want to keep everybody happy. They want to get paid. They don't want to create waves. And so they are reluctant to enter in to the controversial issues of the day. 
the Bible speaks to controversial ethical issues of the day. To say, well, I only teach the Bible. I don't want to get involved in the issues of racism. Well, I only teach the Bible. I don't want to get involved with transgenderism. I only teach the Bible. I don't want to get involved with homosexuality. Are you kidding me? Read your Bible and you'll find it's all there. Well, no, I don't want to get involved in social social things. I remember when I was in seminary, I asked Dr. Charles Ryrie, I said, Dr. Ryrie, what's going to be the most important issue for the church in the coming years? He didn't blink at all. He said, very simply, the church has to understand its social responsibility and its social role and social action theory. Now, I had no clue he was going to say that, but he was absolutely right. Forty years ago, he was peeping into the future and realized, yep, that is what the church has to figure out. So the church pastors have to be competent theologically and ethically, and they therefore then have to have the courage to speak to the issues of the day. So a non, he's a, a non-charismatic uh, prophet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that is exactly what he was. Yeah. No, it it definitely is uh um interesting today where you see some pastors that don't want to step on people's feet, then uh, that means you're cutting out whole chunks of the Bible, that's for sure. And that's well, a danger. We've got yeah. to be relevant. You know, people say, well, we've got to be relevant. Well, if you speak things that are eternal, you will be you will be eternally relevant. Mm-hmm. We just need to know what's eternal. And that's the authority of the word of God. And that, by the way, is the other things being attacked and has always been attacked from the Garden of Eden until today, the authority and the inerrancy of the word of God. That is what's under attack. Yep. Amen. Well, one of um, my favorite questions to always ask anybody that we have on um, is uh, other than the Bible. Okay. Because we know that you love the Bible and that that is your number one inspiration for growth. Um, but what has been one of the greatest influences uh, that has helped you shape doctrinally, theologically in your stances today? Maybe some writers, maybe a specific book. Uh, you were around some, you know, spiritual giants like Two Saint, you know, Ryrie and, and uh, Zook and you know, all those guys going back. Um, what would you say has guided you uh, where you are today as, as a theologian? Well, I think Dr. John MacArthur was the most influential person in the first part of my Christian life. And then Zane Hodges, that's kind of ironic, I understand that, but Zane Hodges was the most influential in helping me understand and training me to be an exegete. Mm -hmm. Dr. Charles Ryrie was the most influential in helping me learn how to do systematic theology and Dr. Norm Geisler helped me to understand how to be an apologist. So those three groups of people were very influential on me. Perhaps the most influential book, and I guess if you want to say influential books are books that you read over and over and over again, mm -hmm. perhaps that book would be The Hungry Inherit by Zane Hodges. That was his first book that he ever wrote. Um, it's a very simple book. You wouldn't think it's a theological book in terms of straight theology because he writes it in narrative form. But in his narrative form, it gives such profound theological insights inside of a narrative. That book radically changed my thinking. Mm -hmm. I've read a lot of other books, but that book I read frequently. 
and it always makes a tremendous impact in my life. Okay, so Norm Geisler for apologetics. Uh, you said Ryrie for systematic theology, and I, I've heard my uh, my old Greek professor, uh, C. Norman Sellers. He always said that uh, Ryrie uh, would basically just he would open the systematic theology um, by Schaefer, and he would he would read it and explain it, and that was your course in systematic theology. <laughs> that it was a tough one. Um, and then you said uh, you would say um, J- Dr. MacArthur um in in what what would you say maybe being exposed to dispensational theology to start because i you know he is a very strong dispensationalist so i think the the draw of dr macarthur was he was a clear bible expositor Mm, and he was a courageous bible expositor and he still is and when i was young hearing that that stimulated me that motivated me that drew me in. Yeah. Now, ev- not everything he said I, I found out was accurate, but but his emotional ability, his preaching ability drew me in, into my faith and to grow and mature as a Christian. Zane Hodges adjusted my exegetical skill to evaluate Dr. MacArthur so I could understand a bit better. So between those two men, they helped me appreciate the Bible uh, Ryrie, the system, Geisler, the apologetic. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, Dr. Che, I want to again, thank you for coming on with us today and uh, just spending time answering these questions. I'm sure that you fed a lot of people today as you have in the last uh, over 40 years of ministry. And uh, we just want to go ahead and give a chance. If there's something that you want to add or say, um, you know, just uh, let us know, let people know uh, where they can find you, uh, any of the, that information that you'd like to get out there. Please go ahead and share at this moment uh, if or closing thoughts. Well, I, I think I would encourage your audience if they want more information on these topics, and I assume they do and hope they do because they're listening to your podcast on a regular basis, then I would encourage them to go to the Grace Theological uh, the Grace School of Theology website. I think they can find some good information there. They could also go to Grace Theology Press, which would show them a lot of other resources and books they can get. And then I would send them to the Grace Center for Spiritual Development. They can get all kinds of free downloads of um, interviews, of uh, devotionals and booklets, and then there's all kinds of classes that they can sign up to take. This, this is not seminary level, but it's 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 Bible college and, and Bible institute level. And they can take all kinds of material there. And a lot of it's for free. And they're going to get a good free grace uh, teaching, good dispensational theology from many of the uh, free grace folks that um, you've probably interviewed on your on your podcast. So those would be three places for them to get some significant information. And I would just want to encourage people to know that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. So keep reading, lifelong learning, and uh, stay in the hunt because the free grace message is always under attack because the devil doesn't like it. And it's always under attack because people tend to like legalism and free grace theology does not allow for that. Yeah, that's true. Well, Dr. Che, thank you once again for coming on. Um, And, uh, For those of you that are listening, 
make sure that you look for the resources of Grace School of Theology, uh, Grace Theology Press. Uh, you can find Dr. Che online. He has many uh, free resources out there and available, many articles. Uh, you've written many various things for GSOT and also the uh, the the GES back in the day. Uh, you've written lots of things for the Free Grace Alliance. Um, I've seen you in uh, bit the Bibsack as well. And so uh, we just thank you for all that you've done and uh, continue to do to keep the message of the Free Grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ clear and free. Thank you, Cody. Thank you for joining the Transform 365 podcast, a ministry dedicated to helping you grow in relationship to Christ. If you want to know more, find us at transform365.com or on our church website, www.swcc.org, located in Miami, Florida. Until next time, remember, the only work in grace is to let grace work in you. God bless.